By their very nature, politics are divisive. The path to a new place of being on race in America requires unity, just the opposite. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Vanessa Rouse. Thanks for joining us for Race to Truth with Neil Phillips. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We're thrilled to work with them to present this fascinating program for you today, featuring Neil Phillips, an educator, entrepreneur, public speaker, coach, and youth advocate. Neil founded Visible Men Academy in Bradenton, Florida, a charter school for at-risk boys of color. And he's now the first ever Chief Diversity Officer for the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. Neil won the Nantucket Project Audience Award multiple times for his Race to Truth talks. And Neil has a super long list of other accomplishments, and you'll hear about a few more of those in just a minute. But first, we have a cameo appearance from another brilliant speaker, Chuck Hobbs is a criminal defense and civil rights attorney who has tried many high-profile cases, including two jury trials that aired on Court TV. Chuck is also a freelance writer and political commentator. He's appeared on CNN, Fox News, E! and other major networks. And even though he's well-known around the nation, he's a local celebrity here where we're based in Tallahassee, Florida. Chuck will share a quick story with you about growing up in Tallahassee across racial divides. And then he'll introduce Neil Phillips for Race to Truth. Here's Chuck Hobbs. Good evening. I am just so happy to be here among you. One of the things we talked about in the back before we came out is the fact that people who have decided to come here tonight generally are good people. Those who thought it not robbery after a long day of work to come and discuss the very caustic and very important issue of race, you deserve a, a pat on the back because there were so many other things that you could be doing tonight. Truth be told, again, I think that before the night is out, we we're going to see that we all bring a, a certain level of bias to the equation, but we're gonna to have to talk about whether or not that bias rises to the level of what one would consider to be racism. What is racism? Is it about power, or is it about just having bias and or prejudice about this, that, or the other? And so again, I think one of the most important things that we can do is come here, break out in small groups. We've got a wonderful present presentation that's gonna come, it's gonna happen in a few minutes when I hush, but again, I just think it's important for us to be as honest as we can. Again, I'm a Tallahassee native for the most part. My family moved here when I was nine years old. 
And I grew up on the south side of Tallahassee. I attended FAMU High School from the age of nine until 16. And for many of you who are here, you know that FAMU High, I believe they call it FAMU DRS now, that is a predominantly black school. I grew up on the south side of town in the Callan neighborhood, which is over by the Florida State Golf Course. That is a predominantly black neighborhood. And so truth be told, I could go days or weeks on end from age nine until 16 when I transferred to a different high school, I could go days on end without seeing anybody white unless they were on the television, okay? And so that experience somewhat informed some of my early biases because many of the teachers that I had as a kid at FAMU High grew up during Jim Crow. Both of my parents grew up during Jim Crow, father from Miami, mother from Tallahassee, a FAMU High graduate herself. And so there were certain topics that we were taught to about as kids that kind of just, they just seep into your mind. And, and one of those was, as a by the time I was 16 years old, I believed that most white people were racist. I mean, let's just be honest, that's, that's what I thought. Most of my friends thought the same thing. I remember my very first junior varsity football game was against North Florida Christian School. And this was in 1985, before North Florida Christian School had many blacks going to the school, and definitely they were not that good in football. They didn't have many that played on the football team, okay? They had Casey Weldon, who was really good, but outside of him, they weren't that good. We used to beat the brakes off of them, okay? And I remember that when we were clashing, I was a center and I was a defensive tackle. Under the line, one of the first times I ever heard the N-word thrown out in front of some of the white guys that were playing for North Florida Christian, okay? And so you start to get this mindset, which is, wow, they must all be racist. They must all hate us. But then I turned 16 and my mother transferred me over to Florida High School, which is Florida State's developmental research school. And on my first day of football practice that summer, the first person to befriend me was a young white guy named Matthew Bender. He offered me an opportunity to put my pads in his locker because we had more players than we had lockers for the team. And we became friends then and we've stayed friends since then. I met other friends that day and during that experience with the football team. And also when you think about my teachers that I had also, it challenged my little young worldview, which is that all white people are racist, because I realized at that point that that was far from the case. And even to this day, I remain friends with many of those whites that I went to school with at Florida High. Some of the teachers, including the former superintendent out there, Ed Vertuno, still check on me to this day with respect to, hey, I saw you on TV, I saw the article that you wrote, I appreciated what you just said, or I didn't appreciate what you said, but either way, they continue to have a vested interest in me. So by the time I went off to college, to Morehouse, I understood one thing that I still understand to this day. We all have certain biases, but how can we push past those biases to ensure that those biases and prejudices don't rise to the level of racism, which I personally believe is a power construct, which hinders certain people based upon how they look, or how they pray, or who they choose to love. So with that, I'm gonna shut up now, and I'm gonna introduce the man of the hour, which is my friend that I've just met, my new friend, Neil Phillips. <laughs> Mr. Neil Phillips is the founder and CEO of Visible Men Academy in Bradenton, Florida, which provides boys from low-income communities with academic, character, and social education. Neil has over 25 years of experience as an educator, entrepreneur, coach, and youth advocate. Neil is regarded as a national thought leader on black male achievement minority education, character development, 
and youth empowerment. He has attended Harvard University, has played professional basketball in Australia, is an Aspen Institute Educational Entrepreneurship Fellow, a member of the Echoing Green Open Society Foundation's Black Male Achievement Fellowship, and a Nantucket Project Senior Fellow. He lives in Sarasota, Florida with his wife, Shannon, and their two young sons. Will you, wel will you join me in welcoming Mr. Neil Phillips? I heard a yay Neil out there. Who, who was that? Oh, yeah, of course. Yay, Neil, I like that. That's a good way to, uh, to take the stage. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I saw Chuck grabbing a towel, so I just grabbed the towel, too. <laughs> Figured it was good practice. Uh, thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Steve. Uh, thanks to uh, all of you for, for taking time out of uh, your days and evenings to, to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. I, I don't jog at night. <clears throat> I don't jog at night. Uh, I used to jog at night very regularly. Um, like all of you, I'm a busy man. Want to try to stay in shape. Couldn't find the time. Often most convenient to just strap on the shoes and uh, get your exercise late at night, whenever you can make it happen. On one such night, less than a year ago, I went out for a jog, and please notice, I am deliberately not saying I went out for a run. This was a jog. In my neighborhood. And as I'm jogging, it's dark, but I'm weaving in and out of the streets at my slow pace, but getting, getting done what I need to get done. And I turn a corner and start to run up a street in my neighborhood. And not too far away, I see a man at the end of his driveway, kind of pulling out, pushing out his garbage stuff. He's going to put it out for it to be picked up. And I keep jogging. I'm getting closer. And then I look at this man, and I notice that he is a white man. And I also notice that he is now jogging. He's jogging up his driveway. And his goes from a jog to a run. So a few thoughts go through my head. The first thought that goes through my head is, what's behind me? <laughs> because if this man's running from something, I need to be aware of it. So a quick beat, quick peek back, nothing behind me. Second thought goes through my head, I must have inspired him. He sees me out doing my thing, he's going to go out and do his thing. But then it quickly dawns on me that he is running from the image that I've cast before him. He is running because 
of who he thinks I might be. He's running because there's an, an unfamiliar image in our neighborhood that has caused him to be afraid. Now, if he would have been observant, he could have noticed a couple of things. One, maybe he's seen me before. This is our neighborhood. He's seen me out doing things in my yard. Maybe I've been next to him at the playground with our kids. He didn't know those things about me. He also didn't know about me that if I were jogging by and saw his family in trouble, I would have done anything I could to help his family. That's who I am, but he didn't know that. And who he thought I might be overwhelmed any possibility. Had he been more observant, he would have also noticed how slowly I was jogging and that I couldn't have caught anyone. But this is happening now, and it's late at night, and now, all of a sudden, I'm getting scared. And some thoughts are going through my head, so I start to run now because I feel like I just need to get home. So I'm running now. And thoughts are going through my head about, you know, what if he calls the police? Or what if he calls the neighborhood security? And I've got to explain, I don't have my wallet, I've got to explain, well, I live in the neighborhood, and then someone escorts me to the house, and I'm fishing through the rock to find the key I've hidden. I got to knock on the door, my wife wakes up. I mean, I'm just thinking, so I'm scared. So I get home, and I get home quickly. And then I start to think, what if I'd have handled that situation differently? What if I would have given into some of the emotion I was feeling when I saw this man run away from me? What if I'd have given into the, emo to the emotion and I'd have stood at the end of his driveway and I would have started to say something like, you know, what are you doing? I'm just out here for a jog. I live right up the street. Then I would have started to feel myself get a little more indignant about it, a little more angry. And maybe I haven't noticed that he's backed into his garage by now. Maybe I haven't noticed that he's reached around the corner. Maybe I haven't noticed that I've taken a few steps onto his driveway. Maybe I haven't noticed that he's got a gun in his hand. Maybe he feels like he needs to stand his ground. And then maybe, right, I'm the next doomed antagonist, right, the next tragic headline, the next CNN, the next how could this have happened? Am I being over dramatic? Maybe. But maybe not. So I share this with you. I share this with you as a way to tell you that being a black man in America 
is a full-time job with overtime. Right? It was 10.30 at night. I'm just trying to stay in shape. Full-time job. And honestly, you know, my black man tank is pretty full. Right? I grew up with two loving parents, middle-class upbringing. Parents worked really hard to send me to great schools, which led to great career opportunities. I've been fortunate to travel the world. You know, wonderful things. Full black man tank. And most importantly, one of the things that, why my black man tank is so full, I know a lot, I mean a lot, of white people. <laughs> right? That'll fill your black man tank. So even with all of that, it's a full-time job. It's complex. It's complicated. It's challenging. So I stand here before you as a very reluctant and even resistant expert on race. I'm not quite sure such a thing exists. I have my own life perspectives. Maybe some of you will share those. Maybe you'll agree with some of what I share with you. But I will tell you that I am the world's foremost expert on my own relationship with race. There's nobody in the world that knows more about my relationship with race. I'm an expert on that. But I don't believe that that kind of expertise is transferable. I don't believe that my experiences I can just overlay onto yours and be an expert on how race is playing out in your lives. Don't believe that at all. But I also feel an obligation to try to talk about these things, to try to share my experiences with others. And we know that the topic of race is at the very least sensitive. It's charged, it's risky, it's even dangerous. Right, the more adjectives I use, the more I start to ask myself, well, why are you up in front of a couple hundred people talking about this stuff then? Right, and if I were to ask who wants to change places with me, I don't know how many hands would go up, but here I am. I feel like it's necessary. We have issues. It's incumbent upon all of us to try and help solve them. And why can't race be more like seat belts or smoking, recycling, right? So I'm 49 years old, and when I was a child, when I got into my parents' car, I couldn't put on a seat belt even if I wanted to because it was buckled up and tucked <laughs> under the cushions, right? That's what they did. And they weren't alone every time I got into my friend's parents' car, it was the same way, just didn't wear seat belts. And now, can't imagine being in a car without wearing a seatbelt. I can't remember the last time I saw someone in a car that didn't have a seatbelt. Smoking. You can walk this very minute into a bar in New York City, any bar, and not be inundated by smoke. We could be sitting right here. No smoke. Unbelievable that that can happen. Recycling. 
And I have to tell you, I believe in the value of recycling and protecting our environment, but it's honestly not something that keeps me up at night. Right, and I respect those who really believe in this and are charged, but it's not. Even with that said, Sunday evenings, right, our pickups Monday morning, Sunday evenings, what am I doing? I am sorting through the recycling, making sure the plastic is where the plastic's supposed to be, the cardboard's where the cardboard's supposed to be, none of it's mixed up, right? And not just Sunday night, I'm doing it all week. I'm monitoring, I have two young kids, so they're messing up my system the whole time, but I'm making sure that the recycling is taken care of. Seatbelt smoking and recycling, they have nothing to do with race, but what they do show is our ability as individuals and as a society to totally transform ourselves. One second, none of us are wearing seatbelts. The next, we are all wearing seatbelts. We can transform, but somehow race is different. Somehow, the challenges of race are more persistent. We are having trouble transforming around race. So my agenda is very, very simple. My agenda is breakthrough. I want to break through to a different place of being on race relations in America. Breakthrough. I want to move away, I want to totally disrupt this very predictable cycle. Incident happens, reactions happen. We get a panel of folks on CNN who give their reactions to the reaction over and over again and increasingly, right, it's not just these incidents, it's these tragic incidents. It's grief, it's terrible sadness and loss. And at the end, no sense that we've been enlightened in any way through them. No sense that we've learned something that's gonna make us all better, that we can put to use right away. We have to disrupt that cycle. And, and I'm interested in breakthrough for us, right? Love for that breakthrough to happen for us. I'm really interested in breakthrough for the next generation, right? So I, I was born in 1966. When I think about how the generation prior to mine moved the baton to help me and to create opportunities for me, I'm overwhelmed. How far have we moved the baton for the next generation? I don't think we've moved it far enough. How far have we moved it? And as you've heard, I run a school for boys from poor families. These are boys whose black man credentials aren't yet what mine are. What kind of world, what kind of nation, what kind of society have we created for them? So yes, I want breakthrough for us. I really want it for the next generation. Really want it for the next generation. And then there is all this talk about the conversation. We have to have the conversation on race. Well, we haven't had that conversation on race yet. Well, we just have to come together to have the conversation on race. Right, that's if I had a dollar for every time, right? And the idea is it's almost as if the conversation, the discussion, the dialogue 
that that's the purpose. That's not the purpose, right? And what is the conversation supposed to be about? I've actually lost track of that. What's the conversation supposed to be about? Are white people supposed to tell us that they're not racist and find a million different ways to prove to us in this conversation that you're not racist? That seems so insulting. I assume you're not racist, right? That's the assumption I bring to the table. Do black people have to come to the conversation saying that our lives matter? Do I have to convince you that we are worthy, that our lives matter? That's insulting. I shouldn't have to tell you that. You should assume that. You should know that. So what is this conversation that we keep putting so much, so much weight on? And how long do we have to have this conversation? Feels to me like we've been having it for decades and decades and decades. So this is not about the conversation. In 2013, I was asked to present at the Nantucket Project. And the theme of the event was seek the truth, endure the consequences. Seek the truth, endure the consequences. So, I presented a talk that I am going to share with you tonight. And it's called Race to Truth. And the subtitle for Race to Truth is Sprinting to the Finish Line of the Old, Feudal, Tired, Played, and increasingly useless conversation on race in America. And the idea here is that enough talk, right? Enough discussion, dialogue, all of those things. And you'll see that last circle, you might have heard in my introduction that I was a thought leader. Enough of us, enough thought leaders. Line right through it. But before we do that, let me say, like I got picked up from the airport today. Being a thought leader has some perks, <laughs> right? So let me milk some of the perks first before we totally drop the line through being a thought leader, but enough of us as well. And we're gonna go right to the immutable truths. But before we do, let me give three disclaimers. The first disclaimer, I'm gonna race through these, which in and of itself is dangerous. So I'm going to generalize, and I'm gonna need you to give me some allowance for that. The second disclaimer, I'm gonna be talking about black people and white people. Right? In our increasingly multicultural, multiracial communities, nation, that is admittedly a very limited perspective. My slides are racing ahead of me. The third disclaimer, this one's my favorite, 
These are capital T truths. Right, they kind of came to me like from a lightning bolt from up above. And so as capital T truths, I'm just giving them to you. You cannot challenge them. It's my favorite disclaimer. We start with a very popular and familiar passage. It's not the opening line in the Declaration of Independence, but it comes right after the opening line. And just for some audience involvement, if you can read this aloud with me, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you. Declaration of Independence, 240 years ago, Beautiful, poetic, inspiring. The only problem is that it wasn't true. It wasn't true. Our founding fathers could not have held these truths to be self-evident in a society of slavery. So what we have here is one of the earliest examples of the need for a diversity committee. Our founding fathers needed a diversity committee. They needed some black people in that room. They needed some women in that room. Because someone would have raised their hand and said, this sounds really good. And I wish I didn't have to say this. But it's not true. We can't say this. We can't use these language. We can't say truths. We can't say self-evident. We cannot say that they've been endowed by their creator, not by us, but their creator, and yet not be granting these to every single one of our members of our society. But they didn't have a diversity committee. It leads to truth number one. Truth number one is that America's very existence is tied to an untruth. It's tied to an untruth. The thinking is, is <laughs> they only meant some of us then. Do they mean some of us now? Do they mean all of us now? And the problem is, is that this contributes to the mistrust, the skepticism of so many black people in our country today. That untruth that we haven't reconciled. And so you say, that's 240 years ago. And my, I, I guess about this, that in conversations among only white people, 
the type of conversation I'll never be a part of if I'm a part of it. It's not only white people there. But my guess is that the sentiment in some form is expressed. <laughs> Slavery, and <laughs> that was so long ago. Can we ever get over this? Why can't black people just move on? And that leads to truth number two, which is that black people can't just move on. The truth is, we don't want to just move on. Of course, we want a world with no racism, no discrimination, no profiling, no stereotyping. Of course we want those things. But so much of our history and our heritage is tied in the pride that we feel for those who came before us, black and white, who fought, who struggled, who overcame. Moving on feels to us like forgetting. And we don't want to forget. We don't want to forget. So the path to a new place of being on race in America has to allow for black people to bring our history with us. Leads to truth number three. Black people need to stop blaming outside forces for our problems. That's a hard thing to say. It's not a very popular thing to say or hear, but it's a truth. And I wanna be very clear about something when I say that. It isn't because those outside forces don't exist. They do exist. Racism, stereotyping, profiling, discrimination, these are very real. We experience these on far too often a basis. They're very real. The reason we need to stop blaming these things for our problems is because blaming them keeps us in a victimization mindset. It keeps us in the mindset that says something is happening to us and we have no control over the outcomes in our lives. No progress is made through victimization. So we have to say to ourselves, yes, these things exist. And we have evidence across our country for generations and generations that as challenging as they are, as problematic as they are, they can be overcome. Truth number four. Politics undermine progress on race relations in America. Politics undermine progress on race relations in America. By their very nature, politics are divisive. 
especially, right, our current climate where it's somewhere between a sporting spectacle and a reality show and a, they're divisive. The path to a new place of being on race in America requires unity, just the opposite. So if you find yourself in a conversation and the words Republican, Democrat are being used often, conservative, liberal, you may be in a very important conversation, but you are not in a conversation that's going to lead you to a new place of being on race in America. Truth number five. Issues of poverty are often mistaken for issues of race. Issues of poverty are often mistaken for issues of race. I'm hearing a lot of conversation that says, well, it's not about race, it's about poverty. I'm not quite there. But we are seeing statistically when we look across racial lines and focus on socioeconomics, we're seeing the same ills, the same challenges, the same futility, right, that affects across racial lines due to poverty, not race. We moved to Florida, it's coming up on five years ago. We have two young sons moved from the Washington DC area. We gave our boys one of the greatest diversity lessons we could ever have given them in moving to Florida, and we were totally clueless. We didn't even know we were doing it. But that great diversity lesson was that in Florida, our boys started to see and become well acquainted with poor white people. poor white people. What that did was cause them to realize that poverty isn't a skin color. It's a life condition that can afflict any and everyone. And it's opened their world. It's opened their world. Truth number six, the concept of blackness is limiting. The concept of blackness is limiting. So blackness, the idea that there is a way to be black, there is an identity around how you demonstrate you are black. It falls into a certain scope of blackness, a certain realm. The problem is, the idea that there is some way to be black or some position that black people must express is limiting and it stifles the range of diversity that exists amongst black people who think very differently around issues, certainly around issues of race. But if you fall outside of what is typically thought of as the black way, the black position, 
then your blackness is questioned. The concept of blackness is limiting. Truth number seven. Self-sufficiency and personal responsibility require education. Self-sufficiency and personal responsibility require education. We often hear it expressed in a different way from one time to the next. Well, if, if, if people would just pick themselves up, just, just go do it, just, just go make it happen. I'm tired of hearing them complain. I don't want them getting handouts. This, listen, I am all for that. Self-sufficiency is a wonderful goal for us to have of every single one of our citizens. If we take that position, we have to be willing to accept the failures of our public education system. We have to be willing to say that while our public education system has done a wonderful job and continues to do a wonderful job for some of our children, that that's not good enough. That public education must come with the promise of being great for all of our children, to provide them with the tools to pursue and ultimately achieve self-sufficiency and personal responsibility. Truth number eight. Black people need to be as committed to mobilizing against intra-race transgressions as we are around mobilizing against inter-race, right? So we, as black people, have demonstrated the remarkable ability to come together to express voice with passion when we feel that somehow we have been wronged or transgressed by an other. That's a great thing. We can mobilize. We have to be as committed to doing the same thing when we see ills in our own neighborhoods and communities that should be demanding the same kind of response. When we see black men devaluing other black men's lives, when we see too many of us fathering children yet not being at home to parent them. That should cause outrage. We should mobilize. And when we get to a place when we are willing to mobilize as fervently against those things, it will actually enhance and expand our voice when we mobilize, when transgressed by whatever the other is. Truth number nine, and this is the truth with which we have to contend most fiercely. While we may be willing to accept, after all these years, that yes, we're all created equally. Right? We may be willing to accept that. Right? You look around and any industry, any field you see, you see people, different genders, different race, different ethnicity. So we might be able to accept that all 
are created equally. The truth is that all men are not valued equally. All men are not valued equally. When you look and you see how long we have accepted abysmal school and life outcomes for black boys and men, it tells you maybe we don't value them as much as we do others. When you look at the criminal justice system and you see what happens when someone possesses marijuana in a white affluent suburb, it's looked at as a nuisance. That same charge for someone in the hood is a life sentence. Not a life sentence to jail, but a life sentence because what you have to overcome after having gone to jail to try to get a job, to try to get your feet back on the ground, can be a life sentence. There is a difference in value. Sanford, Ferguson, Baltimore, the Bronx, Cleveland, insert city here. These tragedies, they bring with them so many different storylines. Police training, police practices, criminal justice, just to name a few, and all of those are important. But at the heart of those tragedies is the issue of value. How valuable is a life? And it causes me to believe that the greatest ism, right, the most damaging ism is worth-ism. Some lives are worth more than others. And truth number 10, the path to a new place of being on racism in America is paved through dignity, inspiration, and love. We have to allow the power of love to work its magic. The power of love to work its magic and have us humanizing each other and elevating one another. We have to search and access the deep depths of our souls and our hearts to live compassionately, to celebrate difference, not tolerate it, those things are always the answer and always will be the answer. Thank you. Thank you. Hey there, it's Vanessa back with you. I hope you enjoyed this talk as much as I did. One of my favorite things about this program is that Neil really didn't pull any punches. He didn't let any of us off the hook, and he didn't cast one group as good and one group as bad. So I think maybe for each of us, 
he probably said some things that we firmly agree with and maybe other things that challenge where we are and push us to consider new perspectives. I also loved how Neil made an excellent case for unity. Remember that part about how he said politics are divisive by nature and how the path to a new place of being on race in America requires unity rather than divisiveness. I think we can all see that divisiveness is leading us in completely the wrong direction, in a pretty scary direction in my opinion. And what Neil is saying really resonates with me and it's in line with what we do here at the Village Square. We come together rather than apart for civil dialogue across differences. But, you know, that does not mean that we have to agree all the time. In fact, agreeing all the time would be dangerous, too. The brilliance of our American experiment is the marketplace of ideas, the checks and balances that keep one group or viewpoint from controlling everything. We each have an opportunity to be part of the solution by being part of building bridges instead of deepening divides. And just the fact that you're here listening to programs like this means that you are part of the movement. So from the bottom of our hearts, thanks for joining us on this journey, along with so many other Americans who have decided it's time to do things differently. One more thing before we go, you guys, listen. Saving democracy is no small job. So today we are humbly asking for your support. Our members help us deliver programming to you year round. And you can join this fabulous group of devoted Americans for just $7 a month or $76 a year. We also welcome business members for $250. Just go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. And to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square, sign up for our newsletter at villagesquare.us. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. We appreciate you listening to Race for Truth with Neil Phillips. Until next time, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It changes everything. We'll talk to you soon, and thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast. Cast.